very excited to join you the beginning of Holy Week as we are using our imagination to um, draw ourselves into this experience of what Christ's life was like that last week of his life, what he went through, what it means for us as his followers, as people that are called to be imitators of Christ, holy and dearly loved by God. What do, what do the events of Holy Week mean for us? How are we to change um, and live differently because of them, right? Before we get into that kind of heady stuff, I guess, or spiritual stuff, I just wanted to start with a few seemingly random ideas this morning. <clears throat> I'll talk to you about when I was driving into the, to the facility this morning for this broadcast. I was driving, and wouldn't you know it, a family of bunny rabbits ran in front of my car, um, which I thought was a frightening prelude to Easter week, you know? the Easter Bunny and his children, they all escaped and, and got off the road, which I was thankful for. And it reminded me of a time back in 2000, August 2018, and I went to a petting zoo with my children, and I was exposed to some rabbits. And I, long, the short story is that I ended up at the urgent care with um, respiratory problems and throbbing and all that stuff, was sent by ambulance to the ER, and we found out later I'm deathly allergic to bunnies. So the Easter Bunny and his kin are sort of the, my natural enemy. And um, my children like to make fun of me when they see bunnies in the backyard and say, look, there, there's your only enemy, daddy. You have any other enemies? I'm like, no, I know of, sweetie. I don't, I don't, I try not to have any enemies. But the bunnies, they are my, they, they've declared war on me. You know, it's not, it's not personal. But these, these bunnies um, did provide a frightening prelude to Easter week, I thought. Uh, another point of interest for me, uh, something you might not know about me, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the things that we are doing and should be doing, if you're not doing, um, the social distancing, good, good practice, smart practice, uh, washing our hands, washing door handles, you know, laundry, all those things that we are doing actually come a little bit more naturally to me than some people. Um, about, I think, eight years ago, my wife bought me this. And I don't mean to cause offense to anyone who was actually diagnosed clinically as an obsessive compulsive person. But my wife, apparently thinking me to be a somewhat OCD, bought me this action figure, which I, like a good OCD person, have preserved in its original flawless packaging from the day I got it. He comes with um, sanitary hyper, hypoallergenic moist towelettes, uh, and there's all kinds of to-do lists, and there's a, there's a safety mask that comes with him. And my wife just said, you know what, you're kind of OCD, so I'm buying this for you as a, as a, as a token. And truly, um, you know, I, I am sort of someone that is okay with the ritual, trying to trying to beat the the uh, the germs and the, the virus. And so, uh, in our old house, we had a stove from the 1950s, and it, and it didn't really work correctly. So when the when the gas was on, you tried to, and, and you uh, you had to light it with an actual lighter. But it was easy; it didn't click, so it was easy to bump the lever, and the gas would just be turned on, and then your house fills with gas and it could kill you. So every day, every time I walked through the kitchen before bed. I would check all those knobs, and that's when I got labeled OCD. And uh, there was this one day, my day of victory, when I think Olivia, like years ago, actually did bump it, and it was leaking a little bit. And then all of a sudden, I walked through the kitchen, I saved all of our lives just by being that guy. And I encourage you, be that guy. Join, join with Pastor Nathan in being crazy and, um, and, and ritualistic during this time, if you can. Um, on, on a more serious kind of, kind of note, uh, this is a towel that I received as a symbol on my ordination with the Christian Missionary Alliance from our previous uh, president of our denomination, um, Gary Benedict. 
He was incidentally another Benedict, a, a Benedict um, president at the same time as the Pope was Benedict, which is kind of funny. But he gave these towels to all of the people that were becoming ordained as a symbol of Maundy Thursday, which we're going to talk about today. Um, of because Jesus on the night that um, of the Last Supper, he washed his disciples' feet. He took on the appearance of a servant, the lowest of household servants, and he washed his disciples' feet. And it wasn't like our feet today, because we do not walk through animal dung and the kind of things that they walked through back then, uh, for the most part, at least in our part of the world. And this was a filthy job. And Jesus, though he was Lord and God, he bent down, removed his outer garment, washed his disciples' feet, and said his mandate, as I have loved you, so you love each other. He demonstrated what that meant, that we are to take on the servanthood of Christ. Whatever we might be to empty ourselves of that thing and to use, to empty ourselves as a vessel to serve and love others in Jesus's name. And that towel is a great reminder of the calling that's on my life, but it's a calling on your life as well. Jesus didn't just talk a good game. Jesus lived it, and he was God. Jesus lived it. He was God. If anyone should be exempted from having to wash someone's feet, shouldn't it be the, the boss? No. Think about it. An amazing insight that David Lynn, our district superintendent, shared with us when Aaron Koonsman and Corey Prothrow were ordained uh, months ago. Um, David Lynn said something that stuck with me. He said, when someone comes to Jesus and becomes Jesus's disciple, in a, in a stunning twist of what you think would be true, Jesus turns around and serves that person. For the person that is serving him, he turns around and serves that person and then says, you go and do likewise. If I, your Lord and master, am doing these things, you do this as well. What an amazing image. And I love um, those that towel for that reason. As I said, today we focus on Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday, which are coming up this week. So we're going to start in Matthew 21. We're going to read Matthew 21, 1 to 11, the, the, one of the accounts in the Gospels of uh, Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. So you want to read along with me, Matthew 21, 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt tied by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? 
The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. We've been trying to gather as a family to, to be the church in my house. And yesterday when we, when we gathered with the kids, um, Jackie did a reading from, from Luke's account of Palm Sunday. And my family together learned that this picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday is not insignificant in the least. But instead, it says a great deal about who Jesus is and, how, and who he wants us to be as his people in the world today. And we need this reminder, uh, I think, right now in our cultural moment, as much as we ever did. This very unusual ride into Jerusalem was prophesied about, as the passage says, 600 years before Christ came in Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what you have to understand is that this idea of a king coming in a lowly way, riding not just on a donkey, but on a baby donkey, is not something a king would ever do at, at that time or in our current climate. This is, this is whatever the opposite of a military parade is. In fact, it's a very ridiculous kind of image when you really think about it. I mean, this baby donkey didn't even have a, a proper saddle but some, a couple of the disciples threw cloaks on its back so that at least it wouldn't um, chafe the master as he rode it. Um, and this was, this was not the entrance of a victorious king at all. It was a parody, if anything, a humorous and ironic imitation of the ways of the world in which we live that Jesus was walking, living through, and acting out. Jesus was living whatever the opposite of a military parade of his day might be. Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome during Christ's life, would enter each town that he ruled riding a white stallion, the strongest, most pure-looking steed he could find, accompanied by dignitaries and soldiers with stockpiles of weapons. This was Caesar's victory march as the supreme ruler and self-styled God. He, he, he told, said that he was God of the people. Um, everyone that, that was crushed had their neck pinned to the ground under Rome's heel in, in Jesus' day. Um, he would come in and he would, he would, on this white horse with this huge military company and dignitaries, and, and show everybody just how powerful he was. And the people would compulsively bow before him. If they didn't, I think that we all know what would happen. The point of all this is this whole display was, was forced. It was coerced by power, by worldly power, dominant strength and pride. The term Roman peace, you may remember from high school, or Pax Romana, means peace through the sword, peace uh, through force. Uh, and, and, and Rome was very successful at keeping the peace, now called the Roman peace, by dominating everybody by military parades showing how many weapons they had and saying, you know, it'll be good for you if you bow down to me. It'll be good for you if you pay your taxes. It'll be good for you if you declare that, that Caesar is Lord and there is no other Lord but Caesar. In fact, he's the son of God, the savior, the Messiah. These were the things that people said about the emperor in Jesus' day. So you can see how significant Jesus' ride into Jerusalem is 
on this donkey, on this foal of a donkey. Think miniature donkey. It's a funny image. It's a ridiculous image in many ways. Jesus chooses something unprecedented for his victorious, righteous entry into Jerusalem. A parody, even, even on some level, what feels like a, uh, uh, an imitation or even a mockery of worldly power. He chooses to ride into Jerusalem in a lowly way, without soldiers, without weapons, without dignitaries, without fanfare whatsoever. Just these common people that were following him around, these poor people, without any clout, without any money, without any influence. Huge crowd just following him into town. And unlike the people that bowed the knee to Caesar when he came through town, these people were not coerced or forced to pay homage to Jesus as he rode in. But of their own free will, these people spontaneously threw down their coats to, to make a makeshift road for Jesus and cut palms and threw them in the road as well and waved them in the air in celebration. This was not scripted. This was not a, a flash mob where they said, let's get together this time, this place and worship Jesus. This was not compulsory. This was not coerced or forced. This was spontaneous act of worship at Jesus's presence coming into town. Yet, it was in the style of the Roman emperor, a parody, if you will, an invitation to tell a story without words of the kind of power Jesus is talking about when he talks about power, an upside down power. Um, and though this was, in many ways, a parodied style of a victorious emperor's victory march, According to Zechariah 9.9, this somewhat ridiculous scene was also a very real demonstration of Jesus's righteousness and victory. It actually was a demonstration of his true righteousness and victory. The word of God in the, in the scriptures is signaling to us as God's people that we are to evaluate the ways of the world and its show of power by force and domination and choose to live in a different way in our personal lives, in our lives in society, in an upside down way. In the kingdoms of the world we live in, rulers, as Jesus has ta taught in the scriptures, rulers lord their power over their subjects, over the people that they rule. And they lead by inspiring fear in their people through a show of strength, military, civic pride, whatever, you might, whatever it might be. We have seen military parades in recent days in our world, and we know why they truly exist. Why do they exist? Why are they televised? Why are they planned? Why do they bring out the latest technology? To send a message to our neighbors, to the neighbors of whatever country is doing this parade. This is uh, the only reason uh, and the only victory that the kingdoms of this world know. Victory by force and domination. Crushing victory. Peace by intimidation and domination. But for those who would desire to enter the kingdom of God, we must follow in the footsteps of Jesus in all things and in every situation. And Jesus both teaches us specifics in his parables and sermons made available to us in the, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament. You could read those in a couple days. Um, he teaches us in his parables and his teachings how to live like this. And he also models it perfectly when he comes on his steed on Palm Sunday. That we're seeing something different. We're seeing something rather upside down. And God's will for us is different. In the case of Palm Sunday, we see that Jesus demonstrated his righteousness 
as Zechariah said, in his victory by trusting God to take care of everything without a show of force, without defending himself, without forcing anyone to follow him or to worship him, without forcing God's hand or pushing too hard to make God's plan unfold. Jesus trusted God. Jesus trusted God completely with his life to vindicate him and to prove him to be the Messiah all the way up to allowing himself to be crucified to his death without a word to defend himself or to retaliate against those who slapped him, cursed him, mocked him, or spit at him. Jesus trusted God even unto death for his vindication without a show of force. It says in Isaiah 53, 7, that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And yet, what the people shouted at Jesus was true. Hosanna! It's translated as save, as rescue us, be our savior. The very things that Caesar said he was, the, the savior, the rescuer of, of the people, the Lord of all. These people were saying, Hosanna, no, Jesus, you are. You are the savior. You are the rescuer. You are the Lord. What did those people think when they were saying this about Jesus? What did they think Jesus was going to do for them when they shouted, Hosanna. They probably had in mind something like a coup and an overthrow of Emperor Caesar and the Roman at the government, which was universally hated by the Jewish people who were, who were being dominated by this empire at the time. They probably thought that Jesus was going to, with all of his popularity, with his miracles, even raising the dead, this is our guy. He's going to do it. So they shouted, Hosanna, save us, rescue us, Jesus. But whatever the crowd thought they were saying, what they meant, when they shouted, Hosanna, save us, Jesus actually accomplished through his soon coming death on this cross and his resurrection. Jesus knew that trusting God to take care of everything was first and foremost. So Jesus didn't actually do very much besides following God step by step in obedience, trusting God to take care of everything in God's plan of salvation. He was a obedient and willing son and submitted to the Father perfectly, um, trusting him. And it was this ultimate trust in God um, that allowed Jesus to die without even vindicating himself. He actually gave, think about this, Jesus, when he was sweating it out in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, was, he said, if, if possible, may this cup be taken from me, Lord, yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus, um, Jesus, even in that moment, and in his resolve that followed that moment, was trusting God to death. He was trusting God to death. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having your reputation destroyed and having people say all these things about you, um, having all this popularity, then all of a sudden be, being rejected, spit on, persecuted, and ultimately crucified? And Jesus trusted God through all of that. He didn't raise, he didn't raise an objection. He didn't raise his voice. He endured everything, believing that God was in control, that God had a plan. He trusted God to death. And he was not disappointed. Because no one who trusts God that much will be put to shame. No one's enemies will triumph over them who put their trust 
in God and God's plan. Maybe Jesus had a more focused idea of what God was doing in his life than we do. But what he demonstrated for us in his 100% humanity, while at the same time being 100% God, what Jesus demonstrated for us was a radical trust. He trusted God to death. And he calls us to do the same. He bids us to come and trust the Father, even unto death. It's, a, it's an amazing and, and actually freeing thought this morning. And it was this ultimate trust that Jesus had in the Father that, allowed, that Jesus gave himself up to die according to the plan of God. And then three days later, as we will discuss next week, you know, God did vindicate Jesus. He rose him from the dead, proving to the world that he was the Messiah, the Savior, the victor, and he was resurrected by God's Spirit. The word from the beginning that spoke the world into creation, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, Hosanna. So let me ask you this morning, how much are you trusting God these days? These days of COVID-19 and many, many other things that we go through in our regular lives. The scripture promises in Psalm 25, and it's ratified in Romans 10, that whoever puts their trust in God will not be put to shame. We are, we are called uh, to, to trust God to death, you know, trust him completely and fully and radically and believe that he is good and that he is with us, that he will hold us. And I, I've always, that's one of those promises in scripture I've always held on to. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. My hope is in you. How much are you trusting God these days? Jesus was not, was not a fool. He was, a, he was the, whatever the opposite of a fool is. He was wise. He was, he was you know, wise as a serpent and as, as timid as a dove, as, as, as he advised his followers to be. He was no fool. Jesus made preparations for his life. He made Passover preparations. He, he walked away from some very explosive situations socially that could have gotten him prematurely killed before his planned crucifixion at the hands of Rome. Jesus kept silent when he knew it would lead to God's plan somehow going in the wrong direction. Jesus was no fool. He was very careful. But in the midst of Jesus' careful and wise way of life, Jesus trusted God fully. He trusted God even unto death. And God vindicated him as God vindicates every follower of his that trusts him fully, proving to the world that Jesus is both the Lord, the Christ, in God himself in the flesh, the creator of the world, um, the one who gives salvation to anyone who looks to him. And likewise, you know, we need to trust. We, we must follow Jesus' example of radical trust, trusting God even unto death. It's a step-by-step daily trust in God, trust in God's plan in obedience to him, whatever he tells us, whatever he's sharing with us. And the one who trusts in God will never be put to shame. I believe that. Like, like Jesus, I think we need to be wise in this world that we live in. We need to live carefully, especially now, not do anything that would endanger us or other people. You know, we must do the things that we know we need to do. We must wash our hands. We must wipe down things. We must adhere to social distancing carefully and follow wise and prudent guidelines. In other words, you know, we must be like obsessive compulsive Pastor Nathan, but we do all of this, not in the spirit of fear, but in trust that God has a plan 
for each of our lives and for the church in these times. And we must trust that God will vindicate his children if they walk uh, the way of Jesus in humility, uh, humble and lowly. Think about that. On a donkey, on a colt, the son of a donkey. We must not say to ourselves, oh, can this donkey hold us? <laughs> we must not make demands of others and shout blame at everyone around us as the world does. We must walk in humility and love for God and for our neighbors. Even love and prayers for our enemies during this time. Trusting God to vindicate us. Trusting God to death. Whatever, whatever it takes. Trusting God fully. A radical trust that Jesus showed us on Palm Sunday. We're going to be going into our time of communion uh, this morning. And uh, as we move into this, this Maundy Thursday um, meditation, which will lead into this time of communion at the table of the Lord, I wanted to talk about Maundy Thursday. And, you know, Maundy means mandate. That's, that's the word. It's talking about the command that Jesus gave his disciples, that they are to love one another, even as he has loved them. And Jesus showed his disciples what he meant by how I've loved you when he washed their feet. So it's, it's very specific. This is not um, some sort of abstract spiritual, spiritual saying. He says, I just washed animal dung off your feet and dust, and I just served you the table. So now I want you to love the way that I loved, by serving and taking a lowly place. This is the teaching of Christ. It's all through his teachings in the scriptures. So we're going to turn to John 13, 1 to 17, and then 34, as we go into our time of communion. It was just before the Passover festival, and, and Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That just really strikes me this morning. Like, he loved them to the end. It reminds me of Matthew 28. Behold, behold, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. God loves us to the end, too. God loves us intensely. God is love. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. <laughs> That's radical trust. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Apparently nervous. Um, Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath nearly need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for you knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. 
you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. You should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is so radical this morning to me. Um, not in my notes or anything, but do you notice how powerful identity is in this passage? Um, Jesus in verse three, he knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, if you know those things, what do you do? Well, you go and you be God, you be the Lord, you, you do what, what the king does, you do what the emperor does. No, what Jesus did right after that statement, knowing who he was deeply, that everything was going to be under his feet, that everything was going to be fine, that he was above all, in response to, to believing that deeply, he removed his outer garments and began to wash the disciples' feet, the act of a servant. It's interesting to see uh, he, pride, pride. Pride is like the worst, right? Um, pride actually can keep us from our relationship with God. Pride is toxic, and usually people don't know that they have it when they do. Everyone else knows, but the person doesn't know. Please tell me if I do. I want to know. Um, but Jesus has sober assessment. He didn't think more of himself than he should. He had a sober assessment of who he was and what he was called to do. Jesus knew, he knew deeply that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. And with this deep knowledge of who he was in God, his identity, he could let go of his ego. He could let go of whatever modern word you want to use and become a servant to everybody. Then notice uh, Simon Peter. He gets nervous. I'm telling you what, this is nervousness based on pride. His Lord and master is coming to him saying, I'm going to, he's seeing Jesus nervously from the corner of his eye washing someone else's feet. He's like, no, not me. I don't need someone to do that for me. I, I don't need my Lord to do that for me. Heck no, I'm not going to do that for me. And he's like, you're not going to do that for me, right? I'm the one that's not going to get washed, right? Jesus confronts him in his pride and says, look, if you don't let me do this, you can have no part in me. This is the problem with our relationship with God that we have in our pride as human beings. And all of us have pride and it comes and goes, it comes in waves. The problem is you can't have any part in God until you first let him serve you. You have to humble yourself. You have to say, I can't save myself. <laughs> and then you have to say, Hosanna, save me. Save me, Savior. Pride comes before the fall. Pride keeps us away from our relationship with God. Like Peter, we like to, we like to say, you know what, I'm, I, my feet are pretty clean. I'm actually really good at this um, foot sterilizing procedure. I'm good. Um, and Jesus would say to any of us with that pride problem, unless you let me do this for you, unless you receive what I've given you, you can have no part in me. And then our only response when we're broken in our pride is to come to him and say, okay, but not just my feet, my hands, my head as well. 
take all of me. Radical trust, radical, radical trust in God. Trust in God to death. Um, knowing who we are in Christ. And then confidently moving forward in the way of Christ, serving others in love. What a powerful picture this passage paints. Matthew 26, 20 to 30. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Communion, we see here, is combined with foot washing on Maundy Thursday. Um, that's the real impact for me. The significance of foot washing at the communion supper, it's all about service. It's all about humility. It's all about identity. Um, it's all about Jesus confronting our pride with his, with his offering of eternal life, saying, you can't save yourselves. Let me rescue you. Here, take these things into yourself. Let me wash you so you can be clean, so you can have a part in me. And then I will be with you to the end of the age. I will love you to the end, but you must take and eat when I'm serving you if you want to have this. Um, and our pride will keep us from Jesus. Our pride will keep us from God. Our pride will say, I'm not one of those crazy people that trusts Jesus with their lives. Now, let me ask you, in a time like this, I think it's very exposed that um, some, of, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, some trust in God. And when you don't have anything to trust in besides um, your own wits and your own security and whatever, whatever that might look like, it's a pretty dark time to live in. But, but trust in Jesus is not a crutch for the weak. In good times and bad times, in pandemics and in, and in times when everything is just fine and, and peachy, you know, Jesus calls us, take what I'm offering. This is my salvation. This is my plan for you. Take it. Stop trying to explain it away and tell me why you don't need it. Take it. If, unless you let me do this, you can have no part in me. And what a tragedy that would be, considering that Jesus is 100% desiring to save anyone who will turn to him in this world. Anyone that will humble themselves, he will save them. His desire is that all should come to salvation. The reason that the Lord has, has prolonged the time of, of, between his first and second comings is because he wants more people to come to know him. He wants more people to, to say with Simon Peter, okay, you got me. You got me. Okay. Not just my feet, my head and my hands as well. Just to break through that pride, take what he's giving. It's his desire, it's his will. And this morning, we're coming to the table. 
And we're going to do something symbolically to take from Jesus this washing that his broken body and shed blood offers us. Um, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. He did it motivated by love. It was love that drove him. It was love that drove him. Love for the whole world, it says. And he says, if you trust in the work that I did, my plan on the cross, having a, a replacement to die in your place, to pay for your sins, to cover your life, and then receiving the Spirit and walking in the way of Jesus, walking not in the power of the world, but in the power of the kingdom of God, which is expressed in service and love for God and love for neighbor. This, this, is, this is what we're signing on to when we take this communion supper together. It's a totally different thing than the world that we live in. And um, there's many opportunities during this time of social distancing to, to demonstrate service and, pre and preferential, preferential treatment to others, which is what we're talking about. Do unto others as you'd, as you'd have them do unto you in your households, in your decisions about where you will go and not go. Are we following the golden rule of Christ? Are we emptying ourselves of our pride and um, emptying ourselves to love and serve other people in Jesus's name during this time? Um, there's plenty of opportunities to live out what Christ has called us to, but it starts with allowing him to wash us. So today we're coming to the table. So if you are, well, I'm, I, I trust that you are at home um, and you are either by yourself or you are with family or you're with roommates, whoever you live with, um, whatever elements that you have. I'm going to take us through this process. And as I go through the process, I invite you to join with me and, and we'll take it together in heart as we join in unity together. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat. This is my body. Then Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with, in new with you in the Father's kingdom. Take up the cup. I can see, can see you all uh, taking that with me and that. Amen. Jesus, in unity as your church, we say, Jesus is Lord. We pledge allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. We promise, Jesus, that we will discover who we are in Christ and claim and, and hold on to that identity and use the power of identity that we have to lower ourselves and become a servant to all. That we would, like our master, Though we, are, though we are children of God, that we are the children, of, sons and daughters of the king, that we would, we would choose lowly. That we would come in on the cult of a donkey. 
on some dirty coats among the poor and the disenfranchised in our communities, even in our church, God. That we would take every opportunity to humble ourselves, remove our outer garment to crouch down and wipe and wash the feet of our brothers and sisters in Christ and those in the world, God. Of course, we, of course, um, we pray that we would be like you, loving and serving as Christ did because your spirit is within us and the, and the work of Christ is continuing through us. So Lord, I just pray for an increase, God, as we submit to you, as we trust you even unto death, God, the ultimate trust that we would become a humble people, a loving people, a serving people, that we would honor Christ, that we'd see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. We're going to close with um, another song. Turn my volume up. No, I'm not plugged in. Here we go. I love this song. It talks about the king of glory coming on the clouds of fire, the earth shaking. And then the next verse says, I see his love and mercy washing over all of our sins. This is the paradox of, of the mighty God that we do serve. All authority, all power is his. And he leverages that to pour his love and mercy on us and on anyone who will allow him to wash them of their sins. That's what he uses that for. It's, it's an amazing thought. Let's sing Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna. Church, I charge you to allow Jesus to serve you and then to serve others the way that he has served you in humility and love. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, and the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You are dispersed. You are scattered. Go and be the church where you are. Amen. Amen.